Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Today I'm talking with Alex Taylor. Alex is a sociologist working in the Centre for Human-Computer Interaction Design at City University of London. Alex moved into academia in September 2017, having worked at Microsoft Research Cambridge for over a decade prior to this and as a postdoc researcher at Surrey University before that. Alex talks about his work at the boundaries of disciplines and his experiences working as a researcher at Microsoft. He then walks us through his very conscious decision to move into an academic position. And the trigger for our conversation today was a Twitter post he made where he commented on the many different skills he had to draw on as an academic. In our discussions, he reflects on the labours of academia and the need to prioritise and make choices. He also talks about the importance of generative resistance in the face of demands of the academy how this is about taking principled stands, saying no and offering alternatives. And he talks about doing this as a collective endeavour and the power of everyday small actions. In all he does, Alex is deeply reflective and values-driven and he asks how do we create the opportunities and spaces to do the Academy differently? In our discussions, he actually points to many of the practical ways we can all be part of this. Alex, I really appreciate that you've made the time for me today here. And we're sitting in your office at uh, City University of London, which is a different position for you, isn't it? It is. Well, Geraldine, it's it's a real joy to be part of the podcast series. Um, And I'm flattered that you asked. Um, So, yeah, I'm... I've been at City now in the Centre for Human-Computer Interaction Design for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you know, um, prior to that, I was at Microsoft Research, and I was there for about 12 to 13 years, so a really a long time. Wow. Actually, yeah, when I think back, it's... That has been forever. Where where were you before then? So I was at uh, University of Surrey. I did my PhD there, and then I was in the middle of a postdoc. And um, various circumstances fell into place. I was first contracting for Microsoft as a um, working with an anthropologist um, there, and then Microsoft Research in Cambridge in the UK decided they wanted to set up an HCI group. Um, and so um, my friends and colleagues, Richard Harper and Abby Sellen, um, were hired to set up the group, and I had worked with them for, for years already. Mm-hmm. I had been at Xerox um, Europark, and I had done my PhD with Richard Harper. So your PhD was technically given by Surrey, yes. but the actual work was located at Xerox Park. Uh, Richard and I had left Xerox, and so we, we were both at Surrey, and um, so quite, quite separate 
to what we had been doing at Xerox, um, I knew I needed to do a PhD to continue mm-hmm. my research mm-hmm. career. And um, Richard had done an incredible job um, putting together a big um, co-funded project with some of the mobile phone service providers. Mm. And so my PhD ended up being in that area. Right. So what's your background? I'm a sociologist. You're a sociologist. Yeah. So I feel you know, slightly uneasy in, in, in technical settings. And so except, obviously at Microsoft that was strange. Um, except you've been working on technical yeah, issues from those early days. What, yes. what was the transition from doing a sociology degree to yeah. doing research on mobile yes um so i think it was that interest in um the sociology of technology Mm -hmm. and i think that was fortuitous um so my phd for example was on teenagers and mobile phones a long time ago and um that was still a surprise to to many of us and particularly to the industry what the results were a surprise uh, but Young people might be using a technology that was ostensibly for business people. Don't you forget that? You forget, yeah. Because so now I'm yeah. sort of thinking, well, yeah. why was that surprising? Because yeah. we it, we forget that moment where yeah. people had not expected that, and the SMS, for example, was um, again surprising that people used that mm. in, in abandonment. And, you know, something that had been designed to be a back channel for engineers ended up, I think, being, you know, a really important linchpin to what made smartphones successful and what they are today. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting with a lot of the talk now with um, what we're seeing in the press around the impacts of AI mm-hmm. and, and on the future of work or on our privacy or the data and that, one of the calls is often from people that we should be trying when we're setting up our research to anticipate what the possible impacts could be. Yeah. But it's actually really hard, isn't it? Um, you know, if like your example with the mobile phone and just people being surprised about young yes. people and yeah. how SMS got reappropriated away from back-channeling. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we live in an era where we can see more than ever that the kind of origins of HCI and design were so constrained because mm. of what the technologies were. That It was plausible to sort of think, well, the interface should be like this or yeah. that. Yeah. And yet now, as you say, we just don't have that yeah. degree of control. But um, even then when we sort of thought we might have just had a small phone screen, you know, that yeah. you're just designing for, it's not, it wasn't. It yes. was Everything. transforming the way young people communicated yeah so i think as a sociologist that yeah. that's what excited me was that i'd had an opportunity and it, you know it was it was fortuitous it was luck in a way that i'd realized that um you know, perhaps young people would be the thing to look mm. at i wasn't so interested in design I, mm. you know design was a a way to orient the work for sure. Yeah. But I was much more interested in, if you will, the sort of anthropology of yeah. young people and their uses of a technology yeah. at the time. Brilliant. So you've used the words fortuitous and luck quite a few times yeah, already. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
I do think it it is all about that. Mm. Um, you know, I think the people that I've met who've supported me either directly or indirectly in my career um, um, made so much of what I've achieved possible. And it was just about meeting the right people at the right time. And, yeah. and so I think, you know, I, I fully recognize that I've, I'm in a privileged position because of the circumstances I've moved mm. through rather yeah. than any immediate skill on my part. Um, but you still needed to respond to those opportunities. And I guess there was also a timeliness. I mean, it, it happened Absolutely. to hit a certain trajectory of technology development yeah. so as well that made... That topic yeah. um, was... It was such an important one at the time, and it really did unravel technology, um, the tech companies, HCI, etc., in a way that if we look back now, as you say, it, it surprises us, mm. but it, it it did. And so to have been part of that, you know, I'm not, not at all suggesting that I was a key part of it. I was just part of that movement. Yeah. And I remember yeah. there was one point where I ended up on Radio 4, the Today program, and I just thought, I'm a PhD student, <laughs> and what am I doing on here? But it was because it was such a surprising moment. For and the, what was that interview about? This is a, this is a BBC, a, yeah. a, a sort of a flagship BBC radio um, station. It was. In the um, UK. It, it, it's um, a very prominent radio program, and the, the journalistic story at the time was that... Um, mobile phones and and all the quirky uses of SMS were giving rise to a fall in literary standards among young people. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> uh, one of the many waves of concerns about yeah, loss of exactly. skills. So there was a moral not. panic of some sort. And mm. so I was um, sort of brought on to, to be part of that, that p- perspective and I refused to be. I said... You know, if anything, young people are writing more than they've ever done. It might not be in the formalized ways that we want to yeah. see it in, yeah. in, educa- in formal education. But yeah. so I, you know, I, I tried to resist that. But you know, I, re- I came very quickly came to realize that, of course, journalism has the story it wants to tell. Yes, yes. And, you know, I'm not. It's not that I'm clever enough to avoid that yeah. story, but I realized that. We were all part of it. And did you get edited out, or we was no? It was, this was all live. Oh, but that's you know, good. The, the odd thing was, I was, but you know, it, it took a little bit of time to coordinate the call, um, and I, the only way I could do it was um, to sit in my car <laughs> with my phone, and so <laughs> so walking yeah. the talk in a way. Exactly. Um, have you done much press, just out of curiosity, over um, the years? I have. I suppose perhaps more than usual because of mm. the Microsoft mm. history. And so, you know, Microsoft had a huge PR machine behind it. So we certainly got sort of introduced. Again, you know, this, again, you know, through luck or, or some kind of fortuitous um, setting, you end up being, because you're associated with Microsoft, you end up doing things that you might not ordinarily mm. do. And, mm. uh, you know, I fully acknowledge that that was because mm. of the link to Microsoft. So just, I'm just curious about the development of skills working with the press or dealing with the press. Do you feel like you learnt how to, how to engage with them or how to communicate with them? Um, 
I, I don't feel like I'm I'm particularly skilled at that. Yeah. You know, I I've been told throughout my career that I need to um, sort of make my well, certainly my writing are more accessible. Mm-hmm. And part of me has resisted that, and part of me has struggled with that. I, you know, I'm sure we, most academics mm. have that sense yeah. of not being able to write in a way that's accessible to a public audience. Right, so accessible to a public audience. Yeah. And so the same with verbal communication. With, with, and, yes, yeah. with, with yeah. journalism. Yeah. So, you know, I've written yeah. pieces for journalism context and also you've been on Mm. radio and Mm. tv and i i don't find it easy i'm not particularly good at it just curious because it especially in the uk there's a big push for impact and this sort of uh public facing communication of research is is highly valued isn't it yes that's right i mean i i think i am attuned to the demands of impact Mm. in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been if I had not been at Microsoft. Mm. And so I suppose that hearing about impact from the other from another perspective yeah. has helped me understand its kind of multidimensionality, I suppose. Um, but I, I I wouldn't say I'm particularly good at speaking, talking the talk. Okay, I was but you're still doing it. You still do it as uh, needed, I, which I'm is not, interesting. Yeah, I haven't done something like that for a little while now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm curious about the you know the decision to go to Microsoft Research. You said yes. it was because Richard was setting up a group yeah, there. Yeah. When you were doing your PhD, did you have you were based at a university? Yeah. Did you have any career plans or ambitions? Yeah. And was this a side shift or? So I, I think I'm not sure when, but at some point I'd always I'd recognised that. I was going to live an academic life mm-hmm. and that I that that was what I felt a space I felt at ease in and that I enjoyed yeah um and so when I did when I, while I was doing my PhD I, I suppose my assumption was I'd, I'd be an academic and I as I say I went on to to be uh, to, to doing a postdoc um straight after my PhD again at Surrey and so that actually when Microsoft approached me, independent of this group at Microsoft Research, um, I actually asked for a ludicrous um, fee, thinking that they won't give it to me and I'm not interested in working for Microsoft. So when, so they were coming and asking you for, for an independent contracted uh, piece of yes, work. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was, was to span a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and because what the the person I'd met at Microsoft, an anthropologist there, had had liked the work that I was doing, um, and again, it was in this space that yes. was sort of interesting for yeah. a company like Microsoft at the time. And so she had sort of done a lot of legwork to to try and get me hired as a contractor for a couple of years, mm. and I just I felt uneasy about that. Why? Um, well, I suppose politically, I'm, I, you know, it sounds ridiculous yeah. having worked at Microsoft for 13 years, but politically I'm not um, at ease for working with a big corporate institution that's driven by profit. Mm. Um, 
I suppose we can get on to that. Um, so I, I, you know, so I suppose you know, in full recognition of the irony, there I I put forward this fee for the work, and they came back and said yes. And so I started the work, and about six months through, um, this was when things started to happen at, at Microsoft Research mm-hmm. in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So that there was some coordination between the work that I had been doing and the people I, were, I was working with within Microsoft, the company, and this group being set up in, in MSR, Microsoft Research. Um, but they were somewhat independent and, again, somewhat coincidental. Right. And so that's when, when, when Richard and Abby set up this group together and hired a bunch of people that they knew um, including myself. So you did have a contract for a couple of years, yes. but then you swapped six sort of, months in yeah, to, exactly, to exactly. full-time employment. Yeah. yeah. And did that involve moving, physically um, relocating? No, I was... I, so at the time, I was doing a bit of back and forth to the States, um, but I was still living in London. Mm-hmm. I've more or less lived in London throughout, throughout that period. Right. So for people who aren't familiar with the UK, yes. Cambridge is, what is it, about an hour out of London it's on the train? about an hour train ride, yeah. And yeah. The, the Cambridge lab, Microsoft Cambridge lab, is now four or five minutes away from the train station. So oh, I got that. Super convenient. Yeah, and was it when you were, it wasn't when you um, were there, it, it There was a transition was while I was there, okay. so it was further outside yeah. of town to begin with, yeah. yeah. Uh, so how did you reconcile the working for the big corporate, mm. profit-driven um, company? Yeah. Um, I, so Microsoft Research was a, a very particular institution when I joined it. Um, it was really... I, I came to understand it as driven by sort of a, a philanthropic attitude to research mm-hmm. And, and scholarship um, and I think you know I, this is me reading into it and I, I'm not sure if it would have been told the same way by someone else but I felt people like Bill Gates recognize the value of of the academy and of research mm. for research's sake um, and had created MSR um, as a parallel to places like Xerox Park where there was real scope to kind of do um, what you wanted to do as an academic. And so when I was hired at at MSR Cambridge, I was told, well, um, we want you to do what you would do in the academy, but to do it well. We're hiring you to be a good researcher. Um, That just sounds like a totally luxurious position. It it was incredibly... And I I didn't believe it, but Mm. I thought, well... I'll I'll give it a shot, and and actually for about eight to ten years yeah. it was like that. So they didn't try to shape or influence your research agendas. Well, inev- I mean, they yeah, I mean didn't. inevitably, you're well. First of all, I was hired because I had a particular agenda, which yes. was the sociology of technology and its relationship to design in HCI. So, but that you know, could be already, played out in a broad number of ways. So, so it was yeah. so. Um, as a group, uh, prior to prior to starting within MSR, um, I, I'd already sort of turned my attention to studies of of the home, 
and uh, you know that was a a point of departure for MSR, but they they encouraged it, and as a group, obviously we we really built up a reputation mm. in that space. So mm. we were given the opportunity, and you know if I look back at the publications that that came out of that work. Actually, in my, on my own part, very few of them were about technologies. Mm. They were, were largely about um, how the home becomes the place that it is. And it was through working with lots of other amazing people that they became about um, potential technologies that we might live with in our mm. homes. Um, mm. So, I, you know, I really uh, think we did have that scope. To, mm. So, you know, of course, it was a mutual relationship in which we were aware Yes. That we were working for a company yeah. that had particular concerns. Mm. But you do hear some people working in industry research organisations yeah. where their, their choice of topics it, yes. it is sort of quite constrained and they have to get buy, buy off yes. um, from a, a business unit or buy in from yes. a business unit, buy off, yeah. um, in order to pursue yes. the work that they want to do. Yeah. And that sounds an incredible yeah. film. It wasn't. It wasn't like that in MSR. And yeah. I had I, um, I had a running joke with friends at Intel Research that you, that you would know, Geraldine. And it was how long could you get away with doing nothing for? And of course, none of us would would do that because we enjoyed our work, and, mm. and you know that wasn't really mm. the point. But it was a, a kind of an assessment of what kind of organization we worked in. Wow. Um, and at Intel, it was weeks. At, at Microsoft, it was years. Um, and so that was the organization that I sort of justified having this slightly uneasy mm. relationship with, was that actually the motives behind MSR were not um, about the corporation or pro driving profit um, they were about scholarship yeah that sounds great and, and it also sounds a bit daunting because that means that you decide your own work and did you have any moments were you always confident in what you wanted to do and focus on yeah. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm just imagining that I could I could imagine myself feeling a bit like oh my god what will I do or is it good enough or, you know, it, there's too much freedom and yeah. uh, I'd be happy to have someone tell me a little <laughs> bit what to do. I don't know whether yeah. that would actually be the case. I mean, I case, feel but... like, you know, someone like yourself has probably had those opportunities and decided to shape your research under different sorts of constraints, but certainly in writing a grant proposal yeah. or something, you're still thinking, well, what, what's the lay of the land? What are the play of possibilities for what I might do? And so, mm. likewise, that's what we did. We understood, you know, what were the what was the context in which we were working in, mm. and and how would we scope our own work in in conversation with those. Mm. Um, so I I don't think it was incredibly extraordinary in that sense. I think in in terms of its privilege, absolutely. In terms of doing away with all, much of the drudgery that we have in academic life. Mm. Um, it was an incredible mm. privilege and difference to the academy. Um, but I um, I feel like many of us who believe in what we do and enjoy what we do don't have a problem finding things. No. Um, 
that interest us. And and your work in the home research at that time really was again at the you know, the cutting edge of mm. where technology was going then, because that yes. was a really new area for the whole I think um, so. field. And again, I you know, I'm not. This is no pretension to mm. have been driving anything, mm. but I think it was that urge to think, you know, where are the boundaries mm. that we start to examine within HCI and and um, technology within organizational life, etc. And I, I suppose, you know, I, I've, uh, I've come to realize that's what interests me, or that's what was, that's what yeah. always drove yeah. my, my work was testing out those boundaries. And so I feel I still inhabit mm. the boundaries, the periphery, um, right. something else now. And that it, yeah, that it just keeps exactly. changing. Yeah. So you can clearly see that as this sort of red thread through. I think so through all of the research questions you've asked and the projects you've worked on. Yeah, I think I suppose now it's become a conscious yeah. um, thing, whereas, as you say, look, it's sometimes when you look back, you see... Yeah. So that... Because I'm curious about that as well, that mm. it's it can be really interesting to look back and recognise or identify that as a red thread. But how does it play out in the course? And at what mm. point do you think you did start to go? Wait a minute! You know, yes. I'm, I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah, I think it. I think it. For me, it, it played out in a sense of an uneasiness in the periphery, and thinking, how do I reconcile this space that I've made for myself, uh, along with colleagues? Mm. Um, that is peripheral to, for example, HCI, computer science, sociology. You know, I never felt I had a home, and that that took a while to to come to terms with. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure I've come to terms with it, uh, but it was in recognizing that then I, that I then thought, well, maybe that's just the kind of person I am, or the kind of work that mm. I thrive in. No, that's interesting that you, yes, you wouldn't, you're not a clear sociologist yes. nor computer scientist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you're, you're, your questions are around boundaries and you live yes, at, absolutely. on the boundaries. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What, what are the challenges then in communicating your work? You know, you talked about making it more accessible before and talking about it more in terms of the public, but when you're communicating research on a on a topic that you've you know question that you've asked but then you're trying to communicate it across these boundaries what are the challenges there and um i think i suppose the obvious challenge is it's a it's a work of translation Mm. but i again again this is probably viewing my past from a certain perspective but i do feel that I stuck to my guns. Mm-hmm. Um, that there were things that mattered to me um, that I knew would get kicked back and, and continue to get kicked back through the various means of assessment that we're all subject to. So that might be writing grant proposals, mm-hmm. it might be publishing papers, it, whatever it might be, um, writing um, module specifications for teaching classes, etc. You know, all these things. Um, are where the tensions get played out. And mm. for me, there are 
things that are important that need to be maintained. And so, you know, a quality to scholarship that doesn't give up on an intellectual rigor mm. was, was really key. And so I think, you know, as many of us have felt in writing for, for uh, forums like Kai, for example, I, I tried to resist the formula. And I know we've all done it, <laughs> we all experiment with that. Um, and I try to encourage my students to to understand that they can do that, mm-hmm. but to also understand what comes with that. So you're encouraging them to be comfortable in the periphery as well, in a way, or, or, yeah, you know, because mean, it, it, yes. sticking to the sort of the standard formula for yes. how one ought to write a paper for this community is sitting yourself comfortably in the middle. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think, I suppose, you know, what I, I feel, you know, as many of your listeners will be people who work in HCI and CHI, mm, mm. You know, I, hopefully this is not a sort of, a disinteresting focus, but um, Kai has broadened its view and and let in other kinds of forms of scholarship. Mm. Let's say what in the last what would you say um, six yeah, eight years? Yeah, or, um, you know it's been gradual. Yeah, it's it gradual. To be gradual. Ups and downs. Yeah, and I think that. That's good. We mm. we now have a, mm. a a place where we there is scope. There's a little bit more diversity, yeah. recogn- recognition of diverse ways of engaging and communi- engaging in and communicating exactly. research. Yeah. So, but in sticking to your guns, that that implies that you have to do that from a position of having a good sense of your own identity. Yes. And. You know, probably just sitting at the peripheries of these many fields and sitting also on the boundaries of uh, technology and, and mm-hmm. life research questions perhaps makes you more reflective on these issues, do you think? Um, I, I think through my my academic training, mm. we've, we've like services built in. I mean, I right, think, you know, of course, of, as a sociologist. One of the things yeah. that... I think once through a lot of your podcasts and through um, through, our, through our own individual work is that um, our thinking, the lived experiences we have, both within academia and outside, mm. um, pervade everything. Mm. And you know, likewise, I, I don't feel dissimilar in the way I live my life with my family mm. and in London, living in a particular neighbourhood. You know, we, we again are in somewhat of a peripheral um, mode of living. And so I think these things are pervasive, that the identities we come to have yeah. for, whatever, yeah. for whatever reason. Do you do any explicit practices to support that sort of reflection? Um... I think that's a hard thing to answer because I feel like it is everywhere in what yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, in all the time I spend with both the master's students within our master's course, um, with my PhD students, within my own writing, within my own life at home. Right. And, and so it you. really it's, does just pervade. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. That to always ask questions yeah. and to put oneself... Um, Somewhere else occasionally, mm. I think, is, is really core to how I think. Now. Somewhere else, such as 
or an example? Um, well, to imagine, you know, I suppose, I, you know, I'd like to think we all do this, but I, you know, maybe you know, perhaps that's your question: is how do we do this as a practice? But to um, locate yourself within another category mm. and to think, to imagine, well, what? How would life be lived? in that way mm-hmm. um, and I you know the, of course there are academic techniques to do that I'm, I'm not kind of religious in any mm-hmm. sense about which ones work or don't work they are. Yeah. Um, and have there been any costs to you do you think in sticking to your guns because sticking to your guns yes. just the, the metaphor that yes. that entails implies that there's a bit of a battle yeah. Um, yeah. and yes have you paid any prices do you think in doing that over the years I think it, again, I've been lucky. I think I've worked with the right people. I've had, you know, the clouds of Microsoft behind me. I've had the time that, that has come with the privilege of working in an organization that says you don't have to attract grant money or teach, etc., to try things out. Um, and so mm. I was, you know, the choice to be, in the periphery is a privileged position mm. and I think so I was I had that privilege to, to try things out mm. yeah. um, so I certainly there were costs that um, you know our work the work that I've been involved in has been subject to kind of criticisms of various kinds um, but no, probably no more than Right. other scholars um, but it, it was just important to me to say actually this work does make a difference and we need to stand up for it and I think again you know, I was part of a, a group of people who are working in that mm-hmm. way and I feel like mm-hmm. that, that has made the space for, for some of these who shared similar values yeah. and perspectives yeah, yeah. What was the thinking that then this, because this all sounds rather quite idyllic from a, from a research perspective and not having to get grants and things. What was the thinking for you that has you now sitting in, a, mm. in an, an office at a university and yeah. being a reader here? Um, so Microsoft has changed. Mm. Um, it, it started changing, you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint these things, but I'd say about five or six years ago. Mm. And Microsoft Research, through, through various um, initiatives within the organization, so top-down, but also you know, bottom-up, what, what was happening among some of the research groups within the Cambridge Lab, um, they were much more business folk became much more business okay. focused and product driven right um, in, in choosing the research topics that you would work on yeah we, we, we began to feel that sense that actually the topics and areas and, and even the methods and means by which we did our work were starting to be shaped by something else right not to pretend that it was never not mm. being shaped but but in a way that made me feel mm. uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I don't begrudge Microsoft for making those decisions or anyone within the company. Um, 
but it just started to change in a way that meant that those those tensions that I was always aware of in myself yeah. started to feel out, you know, out of kilter. And, you know, I didn't want to work in the spaces that were starting to be sort of set out for us. Um, and they it weren't meaningful to me. And they, they became it became much more apparent that it was mm-hmm. about a profit-driven mm-hmm. approach to mm-hmm. research. Um, and so, you know, my view of it is that you know, the tech companies now are afraid. They don't know what's next. And one avenue to explore is, well, what could research give us in terms of answering that? And that was not my... That's not why mm. I became an academic researcher mm. or joined Microsoft, to supply those answers of yeah. what's going to be the yeah. next big product. Yeah. You know, as we, as we said at the beginning of this discussion, it... Uh, we, it's so hard to say that anyway. Um, so I, I think, you know, probably two years before I left, I knew I was within that, thinking in that mm. way, and mm-hmm. that it, it, things needed to change for me. And, you know, I, got, I certainly got to a point towards the end of my tenure there at Microsoft where I just realized this is not, it doesn't feel right yeah. to me. And you've got a young family as well. That's right. I've got two young kids Mm. and a partner. Mm. Um, My daughter's nine, my son's seven. Right. So here you are contemplating moving from a job that I imagine is sort of well-paid and comfortable. Was it normal hours, roughly? Um, Again, that was something that was beginning to change mm, so when okay. we first started you know we were we were it was a very luxurious position i mean we i think again we were all serious scholars and so we worked hard mm. but you know the demands placed on us were not the mm. same as in the academy mm. it, you know also i think we need to think that so now this is about 15 years ago mm. the academy wasn't the same place it was then either no. Um, so the, you know these the changes are not detached from one another. I don't think. So then, did, yes. Did you were you actively looking around, telling people you were wanting to move, or yeah. just keeping an eye? I I spoke to a few people. Yeah. Um, I was advised by many friends and and senior colleagues never to go to into academia. Who um, were in academia? Who were, or in, who were, academia, in, academia? Who were in academia? Um, and um, so, actually, I suppose just to kind of come at this a slightly different way, um, I think one of the reasons you came to me for to talk to me um, in your podcast series was a was sort of a Twitter discussion that sort of ended up being quite a big one, and. Um, one of the remarks, so it was an incredibly generative Twitter discussion, and mm. I found Twitter to be, on a few occasions, really productive in that sense. But one of the comments that sort of has stuck with me was, was one that, that wasn't at least framed in a, in a positive way, and it was this sort of, well, how, what right do you have to comment on the state of the academy coming from industry. Oh, this was personally directed to you, this yeah, comment. Yeah, and mm. it, I don't think it was meant spitefully, mm. but mm. it certainly, 
it didn't feel like it was part of the generative discussion that was being had. And so it struck me as you know, slightly um, out of kilter with, with, with what, what was being said by others. But, it, you know, it's an important and an fair question to ask. And that, I suppose, so to come back to the question you're asking is that I, I didn't feel outside of the academy. I yes, felt like yeah. all, you know, many, almost all of my colleagues and peers were in academic positions, that mm-hmm. I worked alongside them, that I cared for them in ways that um, were beyond um, purely a financial relationship or whatever it might be, and that their concerns were my concerns, and that, um, as I've said, that the kind of shifts in at Microsoft Research and the Academy were not coincidental. No. So I, I, I don't see them entirely as separate. I totally recognize that I had come to a problem with a with this privileged back background. And that actually my you know, this this sounds way too honorable than it should be, but my decision to come back to academia was an intentional effort to come back to a place that I knew needed more people mm-hmm. and that I recognized that um, many people get worn out through um, what's happening, happening in the academy and that maybe coming to it fresh might just be one more way to sort of make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it was a very conscious decision on that part. Like I say, many people had warned me against it, um, and so I I started talking to people. I um, then and then I saw a position open here at City, um, and I came and met with um, the, the then directors of of the centre I'm in, um, Simone Stumpf and Steph Wilson. And immediately it felt like a generative place. And to me, you know, I suppose if, if my experience has, has counted for anything, it was that, that the people you work with and the place you work at matters more than anything. Yeah, and you've said that consistently yes. in all of those. Exactly. Um, and so I, that, that to me outweighed anything. You know, obviously for me, geography mattered as well um, with, my, with my young family. You know, there's, I, I certainly had looked at positions in other countries, mm. but, you know, it, it made life particularly easy to find a, a job in opening in London. But as I say, more than anything, it, I felt the centre was open um, and that it was not only open as a place, a welc- as a, in, a, in the form of welcoming, welcoming me, but also open to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I suppose I, I had in my mind that could could a place be made that felt different, that in a sense um, resisted or, or made an effort to resist many of the pressures that we all feel subject to, um, which is clearly an ongoing and mm. massive project. Yeah. Um, but the, I'm not sure I was conscious of it at the time, but that. I, I, I want to find somewhere like that. And what's been your experience then over this year and a half? Mm. Yeah. What was that like? So, um, in a way, to, to come at it again tangentially through this, this Twitter discussion, what... And the, we can put a link to that discussion, yeah, can we? Yeah, it's still we? up there. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll include a link on the webpage for that. 
So the the tweet that I um, I'm not I'm not a huge um, sort of um, person in terms of Twitter, but I you know, I, I suppose once or twice a week I put something out there that comes to mind. And so I had just commented on the, the sheer number of skills that had had been required of me mm-hmm. in one day, mm-hmm. um, from working on a grant to prepping for a class to preparing an exam script, etc. And that um, they were I was required to be good at them all. And so really, you know, it, it wasn't even intended I suppose it in an an underhand way it was intended as a political statement but Mm. it was more just Mm. one of just sheer shock at the at the kind of continued recognition Mm. that as academics so much not just in terms of quantity is expected of us but in terms of skills yes um and again I felt like I had a sense of that outside of the academy Mm. But coming to it and working on it on a daily basis and realizing how you have to move between those things and make an effort to be good at them all, mm. Um, mm. you just—it's it, a very clear indication of the labors involved in being an academic. Yeah, and the the recognition that you can't be good at them all. And I was just going to ask you around a yeah. question around that. I mean, I, I think that was another realization I've, I've had in probably, you know, was certainly while I was at Microsoft was that you, we all have to make um, choices within our lives about where we put, you know, this isn't, I suppose, a truism, but um, about what we prioritize. And mm. you know, I realized that for me, being a parent and a partner were, were very important and that that was going to take away from my academic life. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the people that I aspired to in the academy, I might not ever be able to kind of live up to in my own practice. According to what criteria would you be um, judging that on? I think that's a good question. I, I suppose in a very simple way, recognition that... Um, the recognition of one's work and, and one's position within the various fields that I inhabit. Mm. Um, Through I, publications or invitations to do talks? or um, Well, I, I suppose if you were to think, who would you see as the kind of influential mm. scholars within your own practice? You, you come up with a set of names. Why those names? Mm. What choices have those people made? And I, 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 this is not a judgment at all on anyone. And I, you know, I, I still believe that there are probably people who are just amazing at managing themselves. But most of I us do. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you said, you know, what choices have people made? And my immediate thought was also, and what costs? Yes. Yeah, because you talked about. Uh, you know, if I can reframe something mm. that you said, you know, that you're not prepared to pay the cost of down-prioritising your, your family mm. and your partner yeah, for the sake of a job. That's right. And yet, of course, on a daily basis, we are continually making that. Mm. So it's not, it's not mm. a simple equation, is it? Mm. But it, um, it, it, 
I came to the realization that I had to accept that things might not mm. be um, otherwise if I made the choice, and that maybe that's okay. But it's not. It's not by making that choice you don't then square it away and say yeah. oh, everything's fine. Yeah. Um, I imagine that you can make that choice, and then there's negotiating that within the group that you're in and negotiating it within the faculty and they all have different pressures and priorities that sort of trickle down from on high as well don't they yes um yeah i i think well the 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 choices of course are many and one of them is what are the limits of the work that I'm willing to invest. Mm. And as you say, it's a continual project in Mm. which you're being stretched by particular demands, both um, functional ones to keep the system going and moral ones to to work with friends and colleagues and and help them. Mm. Um, That's an unending challenge for us mm. I, I don't there's not a solution there for me but it's I suppose it's a recognition that I'm not willing to put some things in jeopardy um, or, or do less of some things yeah. and so you know there are, I, I have two days a week where I go home at three and pick my kids up um, and those are strict and I realize that I have to make up for those hours elsewhere mm. in which I do mm. of course yeah um, but those are choices and those choices have impl- implications for my work. Um, and I mm. think I do, I, it's a recognition of that. Mm. So you, you said something that made it sound as well like it, you don't just say, that's a choice I've made, I'm going home yes. two days a week at 3 o'clock to yes. pick up the kids. But that you're continually, f- are you yeah. feeling guilty around it as well or t- feeling the tension of yeah. other things that you could be doing? Uh, absolutely, I, I I don't feel like I could ever be outside of those. Right. They, you know, those choices are made on a routine, daily yeah. basis about working out with my partner what things I need to do and what things she's going to do, mm. and you know that's the humdrum of mm. daily life, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And so there, we're always present within making those decisions and the guilt and pleasures that come with them. Mm. Um, and you know that of course that as you were suggesting that comes to play in the choices we make within our jobs too Mm, yeah Um, and I again you know much like the conversation we had earlier about sticking to my guns there's a a value system that's important for me Mm. in the work that I do here in the centre and that I want to stick to that, and I and it. The trouble is, of course, it takes work. Um, well, that's an interesting. Perspective. So there are a number of occasions mm. in which things have come to me, and I've said no, that's mm. not acceptable um, within the ethical framework that that I want to stand by, um, and I it's taken months i'm sure you've found this and many other of your listeners have found this that if you say no 
no comes with its cost too. Mm. Um, so is this no to taking on a role or a job or no to a way of doing something? Or, um, I mean, just, both, and I, you know, I'm happy to talk through you know, examples. Um, so, so one has been... Um, uh, an effort to increase our master's course size. So at the moment, I'm the, the program director for our master's course in HCI. Um, and like so many courses that are popular and have the, the, the scope to grow, the pressures from our school and university are to, mm-hmm. to increase the numbers. Yeah. Um, and so last year we were told that we would should increase our class size. Um, it wasn't by by a significant amount, and of course the usual arguments were made about costings and finance and how else is a university meant to sustain itself. Um, and when it came down to all what comes with for us um, as a center or as a teaching staff, with that increase, the answer was nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so more, you know, just more work. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so precisely, and this is obviously a kind of theme within your podcast. But that project of mm. um, a neoliberal project of extracting labour for the same or less um, was in clear sight to me. And yeah. that you know there are a number of occasions where. You know, a neoliberal project was being played out right in front of me, and I I was stunned. You know, in meetings and mm. emails, absolutely, st- and um, I just stood up to that. I just kept going back to the people involved who were caught up in a system, an infrastructure, where they probably feel like they're not able to resist. Um, and said, no, mm. something has to give. Um, either the number you've given us or the resources that you're going yeah. to make available yeah. to us. Um, and you know, this year things turned out in a way that were for the best. We got resources and we've got some amazing people in to help support the course. Um, and I'm just now beginning to go through a process in which I'm going, I'm asking, what about next year? <laughs> um, and so, and, and there are, you know, there are a couple of other instances that of, of that kind. Some of them about my roles in which I've just said no. Mm. Um, I made it very clear to my department head that I'm not in this to further the neoliberal project. Yeah. Um, I'm not in education for those reasons. Um, and so I felt like I needed to lay my cards on the table mm. and make that clear. For the are beginning. you in a tenured position? Like, are you, you're fully tenured or whatever the equivalent yeah. is in this system? I mean, system. in the UK system, yeah. you know, as you know, but yeah. some may not, some of your listeners may not, then the notion of tenure is a slightly ambiguous. Mm. Um, certainly, I would fall under mm. a tenured position equivalent to a tenured position yeah. in the US, but that doesn't mean they can't shut 
the department down. Right, because I guess I was just curious, you know, because I'm thinking of some of the feedback from some younger people who would say that's all well and good yes. for you. you know, you're in a privileged position to do yes. that. Yeah. Um, but it also sounds like you made use of that privileged position in a way to protect people who, as you yes. said, were less able to stand up. Yes. So I, that's really important yeah. to me. So I'm, um, you know, I, I'm cautious to say many of these things because um, it is, I am in a position of privilege. Um, and, you know, arguably I'm somewhat naive to the academy. Um, but I, I'm in this for a collective project of resistance. Mm. Um, and I use resistance carefully. I don't mean to project yeah. it as a negative thing. But it, it sounds like it's very values-driven. If You yes. don't do it without having given it a lot of considered thought and know why you're, you're saying no. Yeah, I, I think it... Well, I hope it is. Um, those no's are not just for me. Yeah. Um, and... Um, what what possibilities we set out as a centre and as a group of academics are yeah. not um, for me alone. Certainly, you know, of course, mm. I hope to benefit from them as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, as a centre, we've we've been talking as a group about how I, I, I voiced this sort of notion of resistance and tried to articulate it and struggled to articulate it in different forums um but again yeah that was the reason i was drawn to the center was that i felt that people might be open to this yeah and so it is to me about how do we create the opportunities and the spaces to do the academy differently Mm. um so i was listening to one of your other podcasts ali black's Mm. really inspiring discussion and I felt a real affinity to that yes but it was it's work it's it's it's, you know know, in Ali's story and you know you talked about it as the you know work it's work it is work and it Mm. I think we forget that to resist is also its own project Mm. um, and it adds to that so Mm. of course the easy answer is to maintain Mm. the status quo well easy insofar as it eliminates that the time taken to that sort of work yeah but it Um, creates other sort of work and labor yes um and so so there's another way that you're, you know, you're using the term resistance, which which has this sort of sense of stopping, mm. but you're also doing it from a frame of generativity because you've used yes. generative a lot of times, and in, yeah. and it does seem like it's not resistance for resistance sake, but for better alter, better alternatives yeah. that are more generative. And how would you define generative? Like what what's yeah. generativity in in an academic context for you? So I um, I actually put these books on the table. Um, because they've been such sources of inspiration for me. So um, it, I'll put, Donna I'll put Haraway, these on the, on the list as um, well. Donna Haraway has always, you know, since my mm. early academic life, been an inspiration for me. Mm. And her recent book, Staying with the Trouble, you know, has certainly not, has, has been controversial, but it's been important to me. Um, my second book is Living a Feminist Life by Sarah Ahmed. And the final one is... Um, 
Women Who Make a Fuss, The Unfaithful Daughters of of Virginia Woolf. Mm. And so um, I'm inspired by feminist forms of resistance um, and feminist forms of, I guess, generativity. Um, And I I see those as, um, you know, what often gets referred to as the conditions of possibility, that how do we make possible other other ways of being yeah. or becoming, as yeah. um, Ali Black spoke about, um, that there are, we're always setting the conditions for what, what might be possible. Yeah. And, of course, um, the Neoliberal Academy sets the conditions for a particular form of work and how mm. it gets enumerated and evaluated. But you've also pointed to ways in which you can identify your own power within that. Yeah. That it doesn't... You, you can't... There can be, within whatever possibilities, yes. there can be some possibilities for power. Exactly. And so I guess the question, the ongoing question for us is what other conditions might we make possible? Mm. And, and what, what does it take to make those, to enliven those mm. conditions, to make them something we can believe in? Yeah. And so I think that, you know, there are, you know, I, again, I, I I thought about Ali's points about a writing group, which we have we mm-hmm. have as well, mm-hmm. um, and they sound so small, but they're not. Um, they they lay the seeds for a critical reading of of where we are and and how we might be something else, yeah. and a collective source of making yeah. different. And it's that collective as well because the message that we get through all of this notion of metrics and performance and the ways in which we're measured idealises the individual. Absolutely. Decontextualises the individual because everything you've talked about, you've not achieved anything that you've done alone. You've talked about doing Mm. it with amazing people. Absolutely. I think, I mean, you know, I would, I would say this being a sociologist, but it's deeply structural, that the, mm. the structures in place um, both privilege and exploit the individual. Mm. Um, and so when I get an email that says, will you take on such and such a role? And I say no. Well, it goes to someone else. And so we're being split and divided. It's a divide and conquer mm. regime. Mm. And so, you know, important to me within the centres that, that I'm in is to say, well, how do we collectively say no to that? Um, what, yeah. are, what, what would happen if we all knew that question had come to us? Um, and, I, and, of course, it's not, as you say, it's not just about saying, it's saying no. It's, well, what other things might we offer up as a solution to mm. that? Um, and so, as I say, I d- that's it's a an unending project, mm. but it's also a a structural one. It's like, how do you create these opportunities elsewhere as well, not just here within the group? Mm. But how do you build something up so we all might feel that these are these opportunities are available to mm. us? But we also all might feel that they're just small, like it's just it's just a writing group. But yes. if these can be the small pieces that contribute to some sort of collective change yes. more broadly as well. Yeah. Well, I think they, they create a sense of what we might do. Mm. And so the next time you get that email or the next time you're in a committee meeting and something's being decided, mm. you feel 
energized to say that's not right we've got to do it a different way um so I, I, it's not it doesn't just stay small i don't think no that's interesting so people who might listen to this could be having you stand behind them while mm. they also say something like that you know well that's what i enjoyed about the the twitter discussion mm. was that you know all, all types of scholars were involved in it and of course you know important particularly important to me with early career researchers yeah. and that as you say they feel totally vulnerable because they don't have the position to say no in fact their careers depend on saying yes and um you know i i just want to create the opportunities for them to come here or to work in place you know my my only advice and it's a impoverished advice is to say find the right people mm. that will support you mm. that won't subject you to those sorts of pressures yeah. and that allow you to flourish but of course that's that's a non-trivial recommendation but we can all be part of creating those spaces yeah. um i'm conscious that you have another uh, appointment to yeah. go to are there any key think just thinking back um from the beginning of this sort of at the university position to mm. now and you talked about learning not that you don't have to be good at everything mm. and so what would what would be some of the sort of key other lessons that you've learned or tricks that you've worked out do you think um i i i still you know i've said this a few times but i I don't think there's any easy answers mm. and I think but I think this sense of having people with you um and creating an environment in which everyone can be the best that they can be not yeah. the not the worst or not surviving just some just surviving so like, so mm. And I think again that sounds incredibly grand mm. Mm. but I think it gets done in small ways um and you know we've really within the center enlivened these senses of meetings not just for meetings sake but for spaces in which we allow thinking to flourish so how do you do that practically so it, I think it is about getting the right people to set the groundwork for these mm-hmm. these spaces of of thinking um so in our writing group um we've 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 just hired a new um lecturer Sarah Heitlinger who um has has been doing some great sort of feminist inspired work and she's really trying to set in place a a tone to the writing group much like Ali Black spoke mm-hmm. about um Um I have a reading group mm-hmm. and it's about you know I'm designing that reading group to think both about obviously content that's relevant to our students our PhD students and postdocs etc but also that starts to introduce um these layers of thinking and criticality mm-hmm. and so you know as we started off saying earlier on these modes of being critical are not somehow para- in parallel to what we do that part of they furnish our intellectual mm. capacities mm. um and so it's it's letting those things live together um 
Simone Stumpf, um, one of our other senior lecturers, is running a research group, and you know, everyone has a voice. Everyone has the capacity to bring work. Um, and I think it's just great. And th these things, of course, all take time. For well, us. I was just going to ask, how do you get people to come? Yeah. Um, Not everyone comes. Um, mm -hmm. I think you have to kind of work from where people are able to make these and um, so in my own reading group, I don't enforce it. Mm. Um, and different weeks, we have different people, and, and that's fine. Mm. Um, in a way, I think it's about giving a sense of the environment we're in and what we're open to. Yeah. Yeah. So would these groups happen, each of them, every week, or is there um, some sort of my, my reading group's every other week. Yeah. Um, the... The writing group is every week. It's a mm. two-hour block. Mm. You bring something, um, and we kind of talk about through what what we're doing. I think we're thinking also of having writing retreats, where you know there's a different emphasis. Yes. Um, the research group is once a week. Mm. We have a once a week seminar, and again, you know, each of these things on their own could could be trivial, but collectively. For who you ask, mm. um, who you ask to come and talk in a mm. seminar series, who you read, what you write about together, um, all those things start to add up yeah. um, and set these conditions yeah. for what we're in business about. Yeah. I can see lots of lots of dimensions of ways that these would be really useful in creating spaces for people just yes. to connect. Yeah. For learning yes. from each other, yeah. from being supported, yes. helping the intellectual yeah, endeavor. Exactly. I mean, there's just to make that possible mm. for people, and mm. to for especially for those who are new to an academic mm. life to realize that mm. there are places like that, um, and they're all very collective. I mean, yeah. apart from the seminar where someone's standing yes. up talking. They're all yeah. very, they sound all very, you know, everyone's got something to contribute. Uh, absolutely. Yes, and conveying that message. Yeah, I really, um, you know, I'm thrilled to be part of a, yeah. a centre and an organisation that um, wants, that wills people to have a voice. Great. Yeah. So has this been a good move? Um, I ask myself that on a regular basis and I have no doubt that um, leaving Microsoft was the right decision for mm. me. Mm. Um, I needed to move on. Mm. Um, I, the sheer weight and demand of the academy on all of us mm. really upsets me. Um, and, but I feel really determined to change something and to make make it better mm -hmm. in the in the small ways that any one person mm -hmm. or any collective mm -hmm. can. Um, but those are seeds, you know. Those are seeds for for other things. Mm -hmm. So it, on good days, I feel enthused. Mm -hmm. On bad days, I feel like is the academy where where change can happen. Mm, Maybe it has to mm. be somewhere else. Yeah. Because um, it's a complex enterprise. 
it is and we you know we all mm. we, our moods and mm. feelings vary don't they yeah um just is is there anything that i that you had wanted to say or talk about that we haven't um I mean, I, I, I suppose the, just finally, you know, so much of my thinking is um, inspired by so many different people mm. at all levels of scholarship. And, you know, I, I don't want anyone ever to assume that these ideas have come magically from me. Mm. And yeah. there are so many good people out there that yeah. um, have been valuable to me. And I'm sure that what you've shared here will be inspiring for many people listening to it. I know I'm inspired uh, to go away and do better, well, create places, places for people to be them their best selves. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, so all, all the best in uh, continuing to be here and make a difference. And thank you for your time, Alex. Thank you, You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.